0: Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for A Cup of Happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is an American experimental psychologist, neuroscientist, and writer, who specializes in emotion regulation, You know that voice in your head? The negative one that talks you out speaking up when you know you should? The one that makes you anxious before giving a speech or going on a date? I get it almost every time I'm waiting to go on stage. Now, your inner voice can be positive or negative. The word today for the negative part is chatter. And today's guest, Professor Ethan Cross, has literally written the book on how to manage it. We speak about what mental time travel is, the benefit of speaking to yourself in the third person, and the fact that whoever is making the curriculum for our young minds should maybe stop ignoring emotions when it comes to teaching kids about life. Ethan is doing something about it. He's such a lovely person and his tools to manage this chatter are sure to help us all have a happier life. Enjoy. Hello, Ethan, how are you?
1: I'm great, how are you? So nice to to meet you and to be here
0: yeah i'm wonderful honestly i'm very excited to talk to you because well obviously your book i need to talk about all of that because this is going to help everybody be happy immediately but i i googled you and very quickly and the first thing that comes up it says this ethan cross professor of psychology is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind that makes you sound like a wizard
1: You know what? Uh, We should bring my my girls in here and my daughters. Let's, uh, Let's ask them what they think about that. Yeah, right. Oh
0: my goodness. It's kind of brilliant how they put that. But the book is really about that, isn't it? It's about getting control of the most difficult part of life, which is your inner voice, and it can really do your head in. So it's called Chatter. Can you explain to us a little bit about what is chatter? Well, chatter is
1: what happens when we get stuck in a negative thought loop. So we experience some problem in our lives. Maybe it's something happening at work or our relationships or having to do with the world more generally. And when that happens, we have this amazing tool at our disposal all the time, which is our mind. And so we try to use that tool to work through our problems, to come up with a solution, to move on. But as often happens for a lot of people, we don't come up with those clear solutions when we turn our attention inward and try to think through our problems. We end up getting stuck instead. If it's getting stuck about the past, we call that rumination. If we're getting stuck about the present or future, we call that worry. But the key idea here is that we just keep turning the problem over and over and over. Oh my God, what should I do? Why is this happening? I don't know. Should I do this? Maybe this. What if this? What if that? And it turns out when we find ourselves experiencing that kind of mental chatter, that can be really destructive. It can make it hard for us to think and perform or create. It can make it hard for us to have good relationships with other people and it can damage our health. So it's one of the big problems I think we face as a species and it's the reason why I've devoted my my career towards trying to figure out what we could do about that problem using science.
0: Is that something that everybody deals with? Is anyone kind of free from that?
1: Well, it's always hard to make you know universal claims in science, but I can say this. I have talked to many tens of thousands of people about chatter over the years, if not more, and I've yet to encounter someone who has not experienced a bit of chatter at times. So I do think it's an incredibly common experience, the degree to which it affects us varies greatly. Some people are better at managing their chatter than others. But, you know, when people tell me, hey, you know, Professor Cross, I experienced some chatter at times. The first thing I say to them is, welcome to the human condition, my friend. Uh, (laughs) Most of us do. So uh, yeah, it's normal. And, And one of the reasons I wanted to write my book was to normalize it for folks, because I find it really interesting that most of us didn't grow up learning about what chatter is, why we have it, how we can deal with it when it occurs in school. Like I I don't know about you, but I didn't have a class in elementary school on. So just recognizing, hey, if you experience chatter at times, there's nothing wrong with you. I think that there's a powerful message there.
0: Yeah, because the worry is that people will start to think they're going mad. And actually, it is just human. So, I have had an experience where I'm not really a very anxious person normally, but when I had my baby, and this is why I need to ask you, does it happen when things, big things happen to you more so? Because after I had her, I had this madness. It wasn't madness, that's wrong to say. I'll probably get in trouble for using the wrong vernacular, but I started to imagine it wasn't like a voice in my head, it was like, a movie in my head.
1: Images, yeah.
0: Images of my baby girl getting hurt Mm. in many, many different ways. It was almost like Mother Nature had given me some horrible skill to see all the different outcomes. I would be walking down the stairs, holding her as tightly as I could. And I would imagine myself falling into the wall and crushing her. You know, and awful things like my dogs that I've known for years, like eating her. You know awful awful stuff and it's just so stressful and i said mum you didn't tell me this was gonna happen i've gone mad and she's like no honey you just now you're just a mum and you just see the worry and you see all this stuff and i'm thinking no this this has to go away and it kind of has now i've only a few little bits of it but is that what you mean when you're talking about chatter or is it an actual voice
1: well Chatter often does manifest itself verbally as in talking to ourselves self-critically, or, but it can also manifest in terms of images. We can think, you could think about thinking as coming in two forms, thinking in terms of words. Like we have this remarkable ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And we, we use that a lot. Like if I asked you to just rehearse the lyrics to a song in your head, I'm pretty sure you could do that. I reckon. Right? So this is a basic capacity. But we could also think in terms of images. And we often do. We picture things. I, I had an experience actually very similar to your Did own. You? When my first daughter was born, mm. I remember this very vividly. We call it a flashbulb memory. It's like there was a, a flashbulb. It's like you take a picture and trap this scene in your head. I'd be laying down in bed. And I remember we used to live in this house where on the second floor... There was an opening to the floor below so you could see over the rail what's happening. And I used to have this memory of me carrying my daughter from our bedroom to her and her leaping oh out, out of my arms. Oh no. And it's crazy, you know, like you I can said, you said right now. You said madness, <laughs> I just said crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. One way to think about this is I, as parents, this is very, very common.
0: Oh, it's awful. You isn't are,
1: it? in a certain sense, being rewired into protector mode, right? And so there is, you could argue, some evolutionary adaptiveness to this, to being vigilant for your kids who can't be vigilant for themselves, right? But that doesn't always feel so good to those of us who are being reprogrammed in the moment. It
0: feels awful. You're like, why is this happening in my head? But it has to have a reason, right?
1: It totally feels awful, but it's to protect those cute little entities so they don't harm themselves. How, how old is your daughter now?
0: So she's one. She just turned one last month.
1: Oh, she just... So you'll have some more of this. Don't worry. You know, <laughs> sure. It's t- totally normal. Heard, yeah. And what's interesting, so my daughters are about to be 12 and 8, and it turns out the nature of the chatter for kids... It just changes as they get older and older. Now, for me, it's more about boys. Of
0: course.
1: Than jumping off of the second floor of a home. But your question, though, about do major life transitions bring about chatter? Absolutely. They are among the most chatter-provoking times in our life. When we graduate from school, when we move to a new city, when we get a new job, those tend to evoke this hamster wheel in our head.
0: It's really the worry, isn't
1: it? It's the worry. It's the rumination. Well, here's what's remarkable about the chatter. It can take lots of different forms. So you could think about chatter. The visual is of one of those hamsters in your head running on an exercise wheel. It keeps on running, but doesn't make any progress. Sometimes it can take the form of worry. Oh, my God, what if everyone gets sick? And when is the pandemic going to end? It can take the form of regret and self-disparagement. Like, which is different from worry, right? Why can't believe I said that? What, you know, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? What am I going to do? It can take the form of anger and hostility. Like, that son of a bleep, they said this. And whether it's anxiety or depression or anger, that's filling, it's the spiraling that makes it so toxic. And that's what we want to figure out how to help people avoid.
0: So, I was talking to a friend of mine who had gone through cognitive behavioral therapy. And he was explaining it to me like he would have a bad thought that he was about to spiral. I suppose that's really the chatter. So he was saying when that chatter happened, he just has to do something that is out loud and kind of quick to knock himself out of that thought. So just say, no, I'm not doing that. Or don't be so bloody silly or be quiet. You know, something that wasn't that voice and then it should break it. Is that something that is helpful or?
1: Well, I think the idea of breaking it, I think, is an important point to emphasize. People ask me a lot about my own life. You know, like, hey, do you ever experience chatter? You're an expert on this topic. And yeah, there are times when I experience some chatter. It tends to be, interestingly enough, about my my kids and family. I'm not... The thing you love the most. The thing I love the most. I'm not chatter-prone about other areas of life, but that's my Achilles heel. What I'm really good at doing is the moment I detect the chatter beginning to brew, I have tools that I rely on, like I've got a plan, and I just use those tools to nip the chatter in the bud before it escalates. And that can be really, really helpful, because what makes the chatter so toxic is that it stays active in your head, right? It's like, have you ever tried reading a couple of pages in a book, and you read everything, you're positive, like under oath you would swear that you've read the words, but you don't remember anything, anything that you've read because <laughs> your mind was somewhere else.
0: Yes, I've done that many times.
1: Right, that's what chatter does, it consumes us. And if that happens for long periods of time, that can be really damaging. So I've got tools. So I had a big presentation a couple or last week, and I'm sure you could sympathize with this, like big crowd and big room. And, you know, oh, I, I began to get a little bit of jitters and, and then I, yeah, I instantly just uh, use something called distance self-talk, which is the first tool I use for managing my chatter. I basically, in my head, gave myself some advice like I would give to my best friend. And I use my own name to help me do it. My, Ethan, what are you doing, man? You've You've done this thousands of times before. You're going to be fine.
0: Ethan, I love hearing this because I do the same thing before I go on. You do. I literally talk I to it. myself and I kind of say, don't be so ridiculous. You know your job. It's kind of like being your best mate.
1: It's like being your best mate. Absolutely. So there are a couple. Of, well, first, I love the fact that, That's so that cool. you do this. Yeah. I'm going to quote you on you that. Can. If you You're if I can. You're welcome to. I've
0: done it many times. I stood at the side of the stage and I felt absolutely sick with nerves. My knees are shaking. And I say, don't be so silly. You've done this so many times. You know what you're doing. And you kind of give yourself a pep talk almost like a coach. That's right.
1: And let's be real for listeners. Like, you don't have to use the word silly. No, you don't. No, that's just me. Even (laughs) even harsher words I've used with myself. Don't be. That's on occasion. Um, I might hear my high school wrestling coach telling me to do some things. But here's what is fascinating about this. So, number one, one of the things we know about people is that it is much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is for us to advise ourselves. So true. A friend or a loved one comes to you with a problem, super easy to coach them through the situation, even though they're struggling. But when it's ourselves, we often struggle. What this strategy that you and I both use, and that scientists have studied, what it does for us, is it uses language to switch our perspective. Think about when do you use a name or this pronoun, you, we use those parts of speech when we're talking to other people. So when I use my name to refer to myself, it's turning on the mental machinery for thinking about other people. Like it's putting me in coach mode and that makes it much easier to cut through all the crap and get the advice we need to go on stage or give the presentation and so forth. So that's one tool that it's like it's really easy to do, right?
0: Yeah. I mean that's an excellent. Like super tip. simple. Yeah
1: right? So, so that's one thing. The other thing I'll do, second tool, is something that I call mental time travel. I'll think about, how am I going to feel about this next week or a year from now? And what's wonderful about that tool is no matter what it is, it's going to usually end, and then something else will happen. And when you realize that, that what you're going through, even though it might be uncomfortable, it's not permanent, it'll eventually fade, that gives us hope And hope is very, very powerful for quelling chatter. So that's another tool.
0: This too shall pass. My partner always says pain is temporary and it's the most annoying thing, (laughs) but it's so true when you're in pain, you're like, oh, bugger off. But actually it is very true. It does pass.
1: What's also true about that is that when the pain is happening, we often lose sight of the fact that it will pass because it's so annoying. It's so all consuming. So I find it remarkable that there are these like little mental hacks, if you will, these little like mental jujitsu moves that you can perform that can reroute how we're thinking about ourselves, and in turn, make us feel much better. And if you know what those little hacks are, that can be really empowering.
0: Yeah, you just have to put them into play.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Having kind of, Bravery to do that, to make changes, can be really hard. Do you think the chatter contributes to people making the same mistakes over and over and over again to repeat?
1: Well, I think if you're stuck in the chatter and you're not learning from your experiences, then yeah. Tell me if you've heard this, that people just want to live a life free of all negativity. They just want to always be happy.
0: Yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) But I don't you wouldn't know the happiness if you didn't have the sadness.
1: That's exactly right. If you didn't have the opposite, you wouldn't know how to value the positivity and you also wouldn't be benefiting from the negativity. I think people often forget that experiencing some anxiety or sadness in small doses is actually quite useful. Like when I experience a little ping of anxiety that alerts me to the fact, hey, you need to start preparing for something. If I don't experience any jitters before an event, I usually don't do as well as when I have a little bit, you are so right? So right. a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit is good. And and it helps us learn from things too. Like when I put my foot in my mouth, which unfortunately for me is a fairly common experience. <laughs> I can't
0: imagine like, even. <laughs> I oh, don't, oh, no, I no, don't no, it is. Scary, but <laughs> it is. Go on.
1: It is. I assure you it, it happens. Oh. But that remind. oh, why did I say that? I think about it after. I don't feel good. But then I remember I learned something. And then i don't repeat that in the future
0: what did my dad used to say to me piss poor planning leads to piss poor production and when i get really nervous i'm always worried about forgetting the words or the melody but mostly it's the words it's like the detail and i think if i do that especially if it's a duet or something i'm disrespecting people i mean i spiral i go deep i'm like everyone will think that i'm i don't care and I don't care about them personally, my head will go. I'm like, no, they won't think that. But if you prepare, because I've had moments where I've forgotten those negative moments, they're real. That's not like a pretend worry in my head. That has happened. But if you prepare, then I can stand at the side of the stage or you can stand at the side of your stage when you're doing a talk, and I can convince myself that I have prepared, and I can just be confident in that thought. And I suppose you can apply that to lots of things in life, a job interview or even a date, you know, what I'm going to ask him, I know what I'm going to ask him, I'm not just going to sit there silent and be nervous, you know. You can prepare for life.
1: That's exactly right. So the preparation is key, I think, to minimizing the chatter. And then when you find yourself spiraling, I think it's really interesting how you said you go deep into the the spiral. Isn't it remarkable how deep we can go down the rabbit hole at times? Oh gosh,
0: yes. It's scary.
1: (laughs) In some of our experiments where we do studies with people from the community to learn more about their chatter and how they can manage it, one of the things we sometimes have to do, we have to get people to start experiencing some chatter. And we'll then ask people to share with us, hey, tell us what's streaming through your head. Oof. And one of the most memorable things that I've heard from those studies is, a lot of the time, the participants, they actually don't want to share with us what they're thinking about because they recognize how ridiculous it is, <laughs> how far <laughs> removed from It's like, it's so embarrassing to them. So just actually articulating it out loud sometimes makes people feel better because they realize this is preposterous, you know, no one would actually, but when we're in our minds lost in the chatter, we sometimes we lose sight of that.
0: So if you don't knock yourself out of it by saying something out loud or talking to yourself or, you know, using one of your tools, if we don't, I understand that you can create neurological pathways by thinking certain things over and over again. Will it make it stronger so that it almost gets harder and harder and harder to change it, the stronger that pathway becomes? Or am I just making that up? <laughs>
1: no, that's a great question. Here's one of the things that I think is really uplifting. So, So one way to answer that question is to look at groups of people who experience pervasive chatter. So people who are struggling with clinical forms of anxiety, or depression. Those negative conditions are characterized in part by a negative inner monologue run amok, pervasive chatter. And she could ask the question, do people who struggle with those conditions, do they experience more difficulty using some of the tools that scientists have identified for managing their chatter than relatively healthy people who struggle with chatter from time to time. Just to be clear, if you experience chatter from time to time, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, as you said before. It just means you're human. It means you're human. But if it is all consuming for long stretches of time, that can be the sign of something more concerning. Here's what's really cool about the science here. So one of the things we see is that for many of the tools that are out there, they work as well or better for people who are struggling with anxiety and depression oh, than healthy people that's surprising. yes and it is surprising and one of the ways we interpret that is there's so much more room for improvement among people who are really struggling with their chatter all the time there's a lot more room for these tools to have their benefits so one way to think about that is when you take a tylenol uh is it tylenol in the uk it must be tylenol it's yeah it would be um
0: it would be i don't know Nurofen.
1: Well, think about how neurofin works with a temperature. If you're not really hot and you take the neurofin, it doesn't really move your temperature very much. But if you're really hot, if your temperature is raging, that's where you see a huge decline as a result of the medicine because there's more room for the medicine to have its benefit. And that's what we see happening with some of these tools. The more prone to distress you are, the more effective they are at, at helping you feel better.
0: So when you say you see this happening, are you looking at people's brains? Have you got like little lights flashing on your screen?
1: We do sometimes look at people's brains. We look at their brains. We look at their behavior.
0: So whilst they're doing the study, whilst they're part of the study, you can...
1: Yeah, so so like in one brain, like we recently did a, a study looking at how quickly talking to yourself using your name Help people. There's this brain technique where we basically put what looks like a shower cap on people's heads. It's full of electrodes. And this is a technology that's really good at telling us just how quickly different things are happening in the brain. Like, how quickly is your negative emotion level returning to baseline? How quickly are you controlling your negative emotions? And when we tell people to, hey, use your name to try to work through your feelings, your negative feelings about something we find that that actually starts leading to reductions in negative feelings within one second, which is pretty, pretty neat how quick these tools can take hold.
0: So you're really, you're kind of tricking yourself or convincing yourself with these tools. You're going, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, in a way. You're talking yourself out of being upset. Yeah, you're
1: looking at it from a different perspective. When you switch perspectives, you find that the way you view yourself and your circumstances can change quite a bit. And when the way you think about yourself and your circumstances changes, so does how you feel about your circumstances. And if you know how to move things in this way, that can be a huge, a really valuable tool, I think, for living a good life. Because if you're stuck feeling some way that you don't want to feel, you now have tools to shift things around.
0: You kind of take back the control.
1: That's right. You're controlling your emotions so that they don't control you.
0: Yeah, it's the worst, isn't it, to feel out of control. It can be really, really upsetting.
1: I don't particularly care
0: for that state. No, I do not either. It's awful. (laughs) And then we all feel it. I do think that's important for people to realize. It's not just people that have a real illness. It is just human.
1: Not just that, but I think this is a problem we've been struggling with for as long as we've been humans if you look back in history i mean it's remarkable you think about like the story of adam and eve you know struggling with the decision you know what to eat the apple and the snake and that's a story about managing our emotions or not in their case or maybe this is me being a total geek here but i'll share it with you anyway i recently discovered that the oldest medical surgical procedure that we know of was a procedure that was used in part to help people manage their emotions. So the oldest surgical technique, this is going to sound gory, but it's true, it involved using a stone drill to make a hole in people's skull. It's called trepanation. And one of the reasons it was used way back when, thousands and thousands of years ago, was to release evil spirits that were causing people to be emotionally imbalanced. So like, we started performing operations on ourselves to help us manage our emotions better. And I think we've come a long way.
0: The amount of times I've thought if I could just, you know, if you've had grief and things, that can be a spiral too. You know, you can kind of, any sort of pain or upset. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if you could just cut that piece out? You know, that little piece where those pathways have been made. Just take it out. Just someone take it out. But that's just not the way that it is. You have to put the work in. You can't cut it out. Or drill a hole in your head.
1: <laughs> or drill a hole. Actually, there's a story I tell in my book that's one of my favorites. There was a person who struggled with chatter quite a bit. Normal person, very successful. And she asked herself the same question that you just admitted asking yourself, which is, can I just get rid of this piece? This woman's name was Jill Bolte taylor She was a neuroanatomist. She studied the structure of the brain at Harvard. And, you know, she had chatter at times like all of us. So she used to think, how can I just shut this inner voice up? I want to get rid of it. But she actually got her wish one day, which is why I'm telling you this story. She was exercising on a treadmill and she suffered a stroke. And the stroke was located in the left hemisphere of her brain, right around the areas of her brain that are involved in speech production. And so she lost her ability to not only talk to other people, but also to talk to herself. And I mean, just remarkable experience. Remarkable in a not nice way. Here's what's crazy about her story. Right after she experiences a stroke, the way she describes how she feels is euphoric because she's free of all the chatter, right? She can't talk to other people, but that means she can't talk to herself and she's happy. She describes this as going to la-la land. Just powerful, right? Now, as the days and weeks went on, She went on to describe this experience as as quite debilitating because she realized that although the chatter went away, she can't think, she can't plan, she can't create stories. So her experience highlights that we don't want to get rid of this inner voice or this capacity to talk to ourselves. We just want to figure out how to harness it.
0: We need a little smattering of it. It just doesn't need to take control of us.
1: Exactly. Couldn't have said it better.
0: So how did she, uh, did she ever get it back? No, it was done.
1: She did. She did regain the ability to use language and, and she now talks about it. And, and her message is that she didn't appreciate the value of self-talk and how important it is to have tools to, to manage it.
0: Wow, what an experience for her to have of all people. Did you ever watch that movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Did you ever see? Oh, that? of course. Oh, Wonderful! Movie. I love that movie. They take the memory away of yes the relationship that they'd had. Okay, we're going to find the little bits of your brain that light up when you talk about your ex, and then we're going to disable them so you don't remember that person. And um, if anybody listening has watched that movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, go and watch it because at the end, it kind of shows that it's probably not the best thing to be doing. We don't get to control, do we? We're not God. We're not the universe. We have to just live our lives. Yeah, you know, there are things that we
1: can control and things that we can't. And I think recognizing what those are can be really valuable. Like, you know, one distinction that I've benefited from in my own life is recognizing that I have no control over the thoughts that pop into my head or the feelings that I spontaneously experience. Like, I've been studying this stuff for 20 years. I know of no work that says, "Hey, here's how to prevent yourself from thinking a certain way or feeling a certain yeah, way." You can't. Things pop into my head all the time that I'm like,
0: Whoa. oh my yeah. god,
1: why am I?" <laughs> like, I wouldn't want anyone to know what those things are. If I was responsible for every thought that popped into my head, be I'd be in big trouble. Yeah, like if, <laughs> I know, you know what you, you know, right? mean. It'd be awful. I cannot control that, but what I can control is once those thoughts do pop into my head, how I engage with them, how I elaborate on them or don't. And that gives me a lot of power to manage my experience in this world more effectively. So, you know, I don't beat myself up for having that negative thought pop into the head.
0: It's hard not to, isn't it? Before kind of understanding what it is and accepting that it's okay, you know, it's normal, it's life. You kind of think, oh my God, why did I think that? No, that's a horrible thing to think. Am I a horrible, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. Exactly. I'm a nasty, horrible person, you know. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have driven along a road and I've thought, oh, what if I just drive off the edge? And then I think, oh my God, why did I think that? That is ridiculous. And it's not that I'm depressed or anything like that. It's just a weird thought. It's like seeing the option. And sometimes the options are beautiful. And some of them are really just like a horror movie. Dark, Dark. disturbing. And I yeah. don't watch horror movies. I will not go near them. I will not. Yeah, me neither. I don't want it in my head. It just will add to that horrible part, you know. I'm trying to avoid it, but you can't. It's just life and you have to go, oh, don't be so silly, you know, and not think that you're a monster, really.
1: Yeah, I think you have that awareness and I think that is a powerful tool in your toolbox. I'll share with you one of my own. You tell me if this is a dark thought. So a couple of weeks ago, my daughters and I all had COVID and my wife did not. And at one point, I thought to myself, oh, I'd kind of be nice if my wife had it now, too. But, the, you know, the thought was, we'd all get it over with, we'd be safe. And, you know, but then I, then I oh, my God, what what does that mean? Did I just wish my wife a right, terrible right. illness? This sounds <laughs> oh terrible. I don't know why I thought that, you know, blah, blah. I told her this. She knows this, uh, no secret.
0: And then you spiral. So you have one thought that's like completely innocent. It's just let's get it over and done with. Let's all have a cold. And then you yeah. go, oh, my God. Does that mean wanting my wife to die? You know, it, you exactly. go there. You could easily so go down dark. that path.
1: <laughs> and it, instead of going there, I just recognize, like, I don't know why that thought popped into my head. And I'm not going to beat myself up about it. And so that just nips it in the bud right away. So that's one other distinction. I think a lot of this, Jose, is just knowing about how the mind works. Like, if you understand how emotions work, why we have them, what they do for us, how you can manage them, it gives you a lot more ability to tweak your experiences with those emotions. It's kind of like, if you know fitness works, you could go to the gym, you could exercise. So if you wanted to have hulking muscles and whatever, be fit, you can do it. But you need to know what exercises to do. You need to know how to eat in order to get to that end point. I'd argue that most people are motivated to live lives that are filled with happiness and a moderate form of negativity, but not the extreme. But we don't necessarily convey to them in school, at work, hey, here are the tools you can use to be mentally fit. And in a certain regard, I think of the work that my colleagues and I do and the stuff I talk about in my book is as trying to take what we've learned about this idea of mental fitness, if you will, of managing your rumination and worry or your chatter, and laying it out for folks. And oftentimes it's it's not really complicated stuff to implement. Like doing a push-up is not very, well, a push-up can be hard,
0: <laughs> but, it's but certainly not the motion itself, no.
1: it's not complicated no. and neither are many of these tools that scientists have identified.
0: And they can become a habit, just like the push-up. The totally. first one is going to be hard and then you'll do more and you'll get stronger and it will become a habit, just like When we stood at the side of the stage, that's now a habit.
1: Same with me. You know, one advantage of knowing about these tools is you don't have to wait to just stumble on a solution to your problems. Like I think a lot of the time in life, we do figure out, oh, thinking about it that way did help me. But it took a lot of trial and error to get to that point. You don't have to wait to get there if you know what these tools are ahead of time. Like I'm very deliberate about what I do when I realize there's a little bit of nerves brewing before presentation or whatever. I've got like three strategies I immediately implement. I have game plan and that's helpful.
0: Yeah, very much. I think people that are listening to this podcast are people that are trying to get a game plan. They may have one, they may not, but they're certainly turning on going, ooh, what kind of advice? has Joss's guest got on today and it's brilliant because you have really deliberate advice like those tools and many other things in your book. It's actual like you can do something about this. You don't have to sit and be consumed. You can do something about it. So I read that you had participated in policy discussion at the White House. When you're talking to me now, I'm hearing you say in schools, you know, we aren't taught this. Is that something you can discuss with the White House, with the government? Do you advise them or what kind of conversations go on there?
1: Well, I didn't advise them on that particular issue, though I'll tell you about a project we're doing. The discussion that I engaged in, this was several years ago, dealt with how we can take what we're learning about the human mind and how it works, psychology, and how can we use that information to inform public policy? How can we use what we're learning about the mind to help people live better lives in this nation? And there's actually a lot of work along these lines happening in the UK as well, partnerships between government and academics. There is increasingly a recognition that we should be teaching kids about how the mind works. To me, it seems like a no-brainer. When I think about How do we choose what to teach kids about? Well, a lot of the time, we we teach them about information that we think is going to help them live better lives. So we teach mathematics because we often need mathematics in our lives. For example, you learned when you were a kid how to compute a percentage. And prior to smartphone apps that do everything for us, if you had to leave a tip in a restaurant, you would often compute a percentage. Oh, 5%, 10%, 20%, whatever your tip rate is. Like, that's a tool you can give kids that they benefit from. Now, not everything we learn about in school, we do benefit from later no, on. Yeah, we life. don't so, use half
0: of it. I didn't. Me neither.
1: I mean, I, I often think about learning about the digestive system. I learned about it several times throughout school. And the one bit of information that for some reason really stuck with me was learning about how we get food from one end. To the other it's it's this process called peristalsis right and it's like how you squeeze food down from your mouth to if you ask me how many times in my adult life have i had occasion to use that knowledge of the digestive system actually there were two times oh, really? it was when you taught your child <laughs> exactly both independently wanted to know daddy how can you swallow food upside down and okay here we go and i taught them oh. But think about it, like emotions, anxiety, anger, sadness, grief. We have occasion to try to understand those experiences, I would argue, on a daily basis. So why aren't we teaching kids about what emotions are? Lots of people can't even define an emotion, right? Why are we teaching what is emotion? Why do you have them? And what can you do about them if you find them being unproductive? I think this should be required information. So we're doing some work now with schools where we're teaching students about the science of emotion and how to manage it. And we're then documenting what effect teaching them about that information has on their lives. It's a project I'm really excited oh, about. We're, we're in the middle of it right now. So
0: then once you've kind of got all of your data, you can put it in the curriculum. That's the plan, right?
1: That's the plan, you know, like we've got these lessons, so do they actually help students? And if they do, you know, the plan is to just put these lessons online and and let anyone who wants to use them, use them.
0: You talk a lot about the stress response and you did a very interesting study that was actually quite mean, (laughs) but you put everyone through massive amounts of stress by putting them in a hot room and making them feel like they had to do a speech, I think. So I guess that study was to figure out how we could manage our stress response. Could you tell us how people can do that? How can they put it into place? And and what were your findings on that study?
1: We did do something a little mean by having people induce some stress. But the reason we do this is we have to do that. (laughs) we got to do that to test ideas about how to help people manage it. So this was a study we did to... Look at how this idea of distance self-talk, of using your name to coach yourself through a problem, doesn't actually help people. And so basically what happened in short was people came to the lab and we told them that, hey, this is a study on how people prepare for giving public speeches and say we're going to ask you to give a speech on why you're ideally qualified to land your dream job. We want you to talk about your strengths and weaknesses and provide real world examples that illustrate how you've overcome your weaknesses in ways that perfectly position you for this opportunity. So that's the instruction we give people and then we give them two or three minutes to prepare in this little cubicle. They have no paper and pencil, no computer. So really that hard sounds task, impossible. It really stresses How could people you out. you
0: really organize the speech without a pen and paper?
1: <laughs> That's the whole point. We wanna stress everyone out. And so this is actually one of the most powerful tools for stressing people out in the lab in a relatively humane way. So we do that and then we tell half of the people, hey, we want you to try to work through your anxiety right now. Try to think, why are you feeling this way? work through your feelings and make sure you do it the way you normally talk to yourself in the first person. So you might ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? The other half of participants in the other group, they're given the same instruction, but they're told to use their own name. So some people report trying to work through their feelings using their own name, so that's what we like you to do. Try to ask yourself, why is, and if it's me, it'd be, why is Ethan feeling this way? What should Ethan do? And that's the only difference. So one group is thinking, why am I feeling this way? And the other group is thinking, why is? And they plug their name in there. And they do this to prepare. And then we have them give their speech. And we videotape the speech. And what we find is after the study is done, people who use their own name to coach themselves through their anxiety, they actually were rated as giving more persuasive speeches than people who... We're in the first person. So they performed better. Calmer. They felt better about their performance. They ruminated less. That's right. And so it goes back to this idea we touched on earlier where we're so much better at advising others than we are ourselves. And we can use language to, using our name, can allow us to change the way we think about ourselves, get us to think about ourselves like we were someone else. And that can often take the edge off in stressful moments.
0: It helps us push through, doesn't it? I was listening to a lady that was running a marathon on a treadmill. And she was saying, when it gets really hard, I just start cheering on other people. She's not even cheering on herself. She's just going, come on, girl, you can do it. And it takes the stress out. Her anxiety goes down, because it's like, oh, it's not all about me, actually. You kind of, you remove yourself a little bit.
1: When we experience chatter, it is all about us. All we can think about is the problem at hand and finding ways to reduce that self-focus can be really empowering.
0: So important. Okay, so today when people are finished listening to this episode, is there something, just one thing that they can implement right away in their lives to just feel less anxiety, stress, or worry, or anger? Is there anything that they can put into place?
1: I think remind yourself that you're not alone, number one. This is a normal piece of the human conditioning that's really powerful. We talked about several really simple tools. So I I would just try them. And, you know, my advice is try out the different tools until you find the ones that work best for you. Different tools work for different people, right? So, you know, try the using your name tool. If it works for you, keep using it. If not, move on to, you know, how am I going to feel about this next week? And there are plenty, dozens more out there if those aren't doing what they need to do.
0: Thank you so much, Ethan. I think that the happiness of people general happiness of people is just um not it's not really considered at the highest level you know it's mostly about well look how much money can we make we want everyone to be successful monetarily but successful in life in relationships to be balanced that's very important I think of the people that have gone crazy and shot I don't know there's lots of um, shootings over in America and I think about that man the one that that did that that could have been avoided if he'd have been I don't know, helped mentally, you know? So we can help people not be so upset. We can save many, many other people from being dead. It's like, it's that extreme in my mind. You know, it's an important job.
1: I completely agree. I think we're dealing with a core affliction that we struggle with and that we have struggled with for as long as we've been roaming this planet. And we are now at a point in time where science has helped crack the puzzle of managing our emotional lives. Like we actually have tools that are empirically validated that can help people. These are not perfect tools. We're not talking about preventing a person from ever spiraling again, but we're talking about helping them to a great extent. But we're not putting an emphasis yet on getting this information out there into the world. And I think that's a huge problem. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I decided to write this book. I mean, I'll share with you one of the motivators. A student asked me in class, I was teaching at the university about this information. A student asked me, hey, why didn't anyone ever teach us about this earlier on in life? And I think we should be. So um, I think it's a huge issue.
0: Well, now everybody can get your book. So if they're not being taught it in schools, they can teach themselves, which is wonderful.
1: They can certainly pick up insights. They could go to my website. There's some free tools available there for them to download. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to be getting this stuff out there. Yeah,
0: thank you for doing it. It's really going to help so many people. And I know that it already has. Even just reading the bits that I've read has helped me to kind of know that there are other options and that I'm not the only one, you know what I mean? That's having these moments of madness i call the moments of madness i know that's not pc but you know <laughs> but we all do and it, it's really comforting actually to know that it's something you can sort out you can control you can make friends with even you know so it's really really cool thank you for doing it Ethan.
1: well thank you for also for helping spread the word and um for doing this show
0: oh yeah um, i think
1: i i view, I, I, view, I view it doing something very similar so oh, that's
0: good <laughs> thank you i wish you the best of luck And um, I'm going to spread the word as wide as I can. Thank you so much for joining us today, Finn. It's been lovely chatting with you.
1: The feeling is completely mutual.
0: Thanks for having me. Before you click off, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you, whether you listen to every episode or you've only just found us today. It means so much that you're here on this happiness journey with us. My understanding of happiness is changing and evolving every time I speak to one of my amazing guests. But what I really hope is that you're getting something out of it too. That's why we do this. I want you to be able to live a happier, more fulfilled life. And one of the easiest ways to do that, as we've learned, is to help the people around you improve theirs. So here's my challenge to you. Think about one thing that you learned from my guest today. Really think about how it could change your happiness or improve your happiness. Now, tell one person. Just one person will do. And make their day a little better. Share the love. Thanks again for listening. See you next time for another Cup of Happy.